last week we talked about culture and context and history. We didn't really even open our Bibles. Um, This week we're going to get into the actual study of infant baptism. But when you're considering baptism, biblically there are two issues at stake. And I'm actually going to reverse the way we answer those issues. Um, because I have, in my, in my time uh, defending this and giving apologetics for it, um, I found that this, this, it's actually more effective to do it this way, and I'll explain why that is. But basically, there's two questions to be asked about baptism, biblically. To whom should baptism be administered? So who should, who should receive baptism? Is it just adult converts, or is it adult and their children? So to whom should baptism be administered? And by what mode should baptism be administered? Those are, those are essentially the two big questions. So to whom is baptism administered and by what mode? Immersion, sprinkling, pouring? Um, typically, they, the first question that, that's answered is to whom is baptism administered? And then as kind of like an add on on the end, we say, and by the way, this is why we do the mode of baptism the way we do it. I like to reverse those questions. Um, and, and, and here's why. And it goes back to our cultural study last week um, and the culture that we live in where, where believers' baptism by immersion is kind of the supreme um, Christian thing. Um, to put it bluntly, I think people just love the idea of getting dumped. I just think, I just think that imagery... Um, I think, I think people see that imagery as so powerful. Um, I think they, they want to be immersed. They want to see people immersed. And I understand why. Um, because the pageantry and the imagery is very powerful. And so what I have found is one of the biggest stumbling blocks to believing this is you'd have to give up the immersion thing. Um, and that's kind of standing away. What I've found is if people can see why we administer the mode of baptism the way we do, um, then, then including our children um, kind of comes right along. So that's, that's kind of been my theory, and it's worked well. One of my favorite books on the subject of baptism is called William the Baptist. Very readable, very easy to read. It's written by a 19th century Presbyterian pastor, Dr. James Cheney. Um, almost nobody has read this book. Um, for years, it was out of print. Um, it's back in print. One of my seminary, uh, one of my uh, seminary peers, went and cleaned it up and and did some note footnoting and stuff. And now it's back in print, so you can get it. Um, and I highly recommend it. But interestingly, what he does is he spends the entire book speaking about the mode of baptism. And then the final pages talk about why we administer baptism to infants. And at first I found that surprising, but now I see its brilliance. Because immersion is such a deeply cherished ritual that forsaking it often is the biggest stumbling block. And so that's that's kind of how, that's why I got kind of that idea of let's let's deal with how is baptism to be administered before we look at to whom is baptism to be administered. Experience has taught me that I probably need to begin by demonstrating that baptism by immersion is not the exclusive form prescribed in New Testament. Um, I'll get to why we practice the way we do, but I think first I need to just demonstrate why immersion is not the exclusive form prescribed in the New Testament. In fact, and I hope I show, I don't think it's happening in the New Testament. After that, I can explain our opinion um, and why we do things we do. 
Um, but first, let me spend some time showing the New Testament does not prescribe baptism by immersion alone. Which, by the way, that's the only thing I have to show you. Um, we believe, when you look at, our, at the Westminster Confessions of Faith, what is, what is, what is required for baptism is that it be administered by water with a Trinitarian formula in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We accept immersion as a valid form of baptism. We accept sprinkling and pouring as valid forms of baptism. The Baptist Church does not. Um, the, only, the Baptist Church is exclusive that the only valid form is by immersion. So what I just have to do, I think, is show you that, 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 that it can't be exclusively immersion, even though we accept immersion as a valid form of baptism. So that's all I'm trying to do is to defeat the idea that immersion is the exclusive form of baptism prescribed in the New Testament. Um, first, let me, let me show some time. Um, let me spend some time showing you. I, I think the, the debate begins with the meaning of the Greek word baptized, which is baptizo. Um, nobody argues that that word can mean to dip or to immerse. That is certainly within the, the, the range of meaning of, of the Greek word. But it certainly does not exclusively mean that. All major lexicons, um, serious lexicons, agree the word has a broader meaning than immersion alone. Um, the word can take on a more general meaning to cleanse, to wash, to make clean with water. Um, in fact, in, eventually the word took on a, a more complicated meaning um, used particularly by the Apostle Paul in his letters, which means more to merge, to affect. Um, if you're interested, well, I'll throw this book out there, but I, I would not recommend this one. It, it's, 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 it's really big and boring on just the word. Um, but Dr. James Dale, definitive work called Classic Baptism, Dr. Dale spent 20 years of his life studying the word baptism. And the results is this exhaustive study, four volumes on a word. Um, but in my opinion, it's, it, it forever settles the debate about what the word means, um, that it does not mean exclusive to immersion. But why look to lexicons and extra biblical resources? Let's turn to the New Testament and see the instances of baptizo. And, and, and see, and I want to show you that it, it clearly does not mean immersion. Um, I use the instance, I'll just, I just preached from, this, this is convenient, I just preached on it last week, so we'll just go there, from Mark 7, 4. Um, when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they, literally in the Greek, baptize, unless they baptize. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as baptizing, of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. Um, both instances there are, are, are the word, Greek word baptizo, and clearly the word is not used to describe immersion here. I don't know about you, I've never washed my couch by immersion. Another similar example would be Luke 11, uh, Luke eleven thirty eight. The Pharisees were astonished to see that they did not first baptize before dinner. Um, Jews were expected to wash their hands before eating, but they certainly were not expected to be immersed before eating. Um, in these instances, and, and there's many more, I'm just throwing out a few, just to show that the word cannot exclusively mean immersion, that the word is used in the classical sense of cleansing or washing. Um, there, there are many other instances in the, Lex, in, in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, so we get to see how they use the word by the way they translate certain Hebrew words. And there are several instances in the Septuagint um, where, and I won't go there for the sake of time, where, where it's clearly not talking about immersion and they use the word baptizo. So if you've heard from people that the reason why we do immersion is because the Greek word just means to immerse, that's wrong. Okay, that, I don't know where that came up, I don't know where that myth came from, but that's just not true. 
Um, and, and I know those sound like arbitrary examples, but all I'm trying to do is dispel the, the claim that, that baptizo exclusively means immersion. Now let's look to the actual New Testament baptisms and see if immersion is likely. Um, let's begin with the first instance of baptism, um, the day of Pentecost, or at least New Covenant baptism, day of Pentecost. I know we'll get to J- Jesus' baptism in a little bit. So in response to the Apostle Peter's sermon, Acts 2.41 says, So those who received his words were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, which is quite the revival. So 3,000 people um, accepted Christ and were baptized. I want to point out, just for the purposes of our discussion, I just want to point out how much of a logistical nightmare 3,000 immersions in one day in that context would be. First of all, so we don't know what these baptisms look like, but we know this. Where were the baptisms taking place? The only body of water in that region that could come close to hosting a ceremony um, like this would be the Pool of Solomon. Solomon's Pool um, was a water reserve gathered by Roman um, aqueduct system that then supplied the water to the needs of the surrounding inhabitants. This water was an extremely important resource to the Romans. Um, It was carefully guarded and protected. If the baptisms of Pentecost were by immersion, then you have to accept that the Roman and Jewish authorities that had recently conspired to crucify Jesus and were both determined to to squelch any remaining allegiance to Jesus allowed 3,000 new converts to Jesus to descend upon their precious water supply and spend the day contaminating it with their filth. That would be the only place that this could take place. But for the sake of argument, suppose they were allowed to use Solomon's pool. Let's just do the math for a moment. 3,000 baptisms, 12 apostles. Each, each apostle has about 250 baptisms to perform. Let's suppose that an individual baptism by immersion would take three minutes. That is over 12 hours of baptism. Essentially, it means the apostles woke up and performed nonstop baptisms until sundown without any breaks or hesitation. And we know from Acts 2 that this is simply not the case. The pure logistical nightmare of Pentecost by immersion would be highly unlikely. It's not just Acts 2. Um, Look at the evidence surrounding um, the other New Testament baptisms. Um, Take, for instance, the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch, which I often hear by people saying, well, that's clearly immersion, isn't it? Because, and I'll show you this, um, it says that they went down into the water and came up out of the water. But the text actually renders immersion unlikely, if not impossible. Acts 8.26, which previews it, introduces the story, says, An angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south um, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Notice Luke adds the detail, this is a desert place. The road from from Jerusalem to Gaza was incredibly desolate and barren. There was no rivers or lakes, but occasionally there would be small streams kind of trickling down from the hillsides and pooling up in a little pool in a ditch or something. And that explains the surprise when the Ethiopian, in verse 36, he sees it. He says, look, there's water. What prevents me from being baptized? They had found some water, which means he could be baptized. But the water would never have been enough to perform immersion. So what you may ask, I'm assuming you would ask, do I say the description of the actual baptism, verses 38 through 39? Um, I'll read it. And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more. Notice it says, they went down in the water, they came up out of the water. If that is taken to explain the mode of baptism, then when Philip baptized the Ethiopian, they both went under, they both came out. Or the more likely interpretation 
um, exegesis is that Luke, who is notoriously a detailed writer, is telling us they both went down into this pool of water, Philip performed the baptism, and then they both came up. Literally in the Greek, that word means they, they, um, to go up, to advance up out of the pool. So it would be unlikely, but some people point to that as immersion. Consider the circumstances around Paul's baptism. Twice his baptism in Acts um, 9 and Acts 22 is described as him standing up to receive baptism. Um, Acts 9.18, he rose and was baptized, literally in the Greek. Rising up, he was baptized. Acts 22.16, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized. Which, by the way, the circumstances of where they could have done it by immersion in in the context, there's just no place. But anyway, it says, standing up, he rose to be baptized. Um, I would say this, um, even outside of Scripture, I'm, I'm just going, I'm just firing off examples all indications from the early church materials point to a mode other than immersion. Um, the earliest document we have outside of scriptures is A.D. 70, the Didache. It says um, very explicitly, pour water three times upon the head in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, ancient Christian artwork. I know our artwork um, has, and this goes back to culture, I know our artwork depicts baptisms in the Jordan of people coming up out of the water and there's like a halo around them and all that. Um, that's our artwork, but the early church artwork in the catacombs um, shows um, people kneeling, Jesus in particular, kneeling and um, receiving water poured over uh, the head. Consider as well practical problems with restricting baptism to immersion alone. I've baptized people on their deathbed, hooked up to ventilators, IVs, all sorts of hospital contraptions, and there's, no, there's just no way to do immersion there. Um, missionaries in desolate regions where water is scarce at best, um, the imprisoned, this happens a lot, imprisoned in antagonistic lands where prisoners would never be allowed the privilege of baptism but are being converted and baptized. And on and on and on, I can go with examples. Um, all I'm trying to show here is that at the very least, you cannot say that immersion is exclusively the mode of baptism. In fact, I think it's very unlikely that immersion was taking place in the New Testament. Now, if you're a Baptist here, you're saying you have not talked about the one text where it's clear that it was immersion, the baptism of Jesus. So I, I will go there. Um, upon first glance, I'll just go to Mark 1. Upon first glance, um, most people seem to think that there is no way to interpret this passage in, other, in any other way besides immersion. Mark 1.10 um, very plainly says, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw heavens being torn open, the spirit descending on him like a dove. Um, I actually disagree with this very casual interpretation of scripture. Shocking, I know. According to Mark 1.9, the baptism has already taken place. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized. The Greek there is a completed action. Was baptized by John in the Jordan. And then when he came up out of the water. After the baptism, Mark 1.10, it says Jesus came up out of the water. Same word there is with the Ethiopian eunuch. Um, hiked up out of the water, advanced up out of the water. Um, it, it, it's, the word is used to like um, who came up, into, uh, came up into Israel or something like that. Um, the, word, the word does not mean... What we, would, what we imagine because of our cultural presuppositions of, of Jesus um, rising up out of the water after being baptized in immersion. Baptism has already taken place. So why is Mark saying this? The nuance 
Um, actually, I'll, I'll say this. Matthew's, I, I did the hard one. Mark's the hard one. The Matthew recording of the same event says, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. Here's what's going on. I believe the writers are making note of Jesus coming out of the Jordan, not coming up from immersion. And there's a very good reason why they note that, by the way, um, because there's powerful imagery going on. Remember the significance of crossing the Jordan River to the Old Testament narrative. To step foot on the other side of the river was to step foot on the promised land. So Christ's baptism is the official consummation of the Messiah's ministry. And so what he's doing is he's reliving the triumphant moment of Israel crossing the Jordan. In so doing, he's symbolically promising to deliver his people into the true and better promised land. And this is why the moment, this is why the authors are saying the moment he stepped foot out of the Jordan, there's this incredible Trinitarian moment where the Father says, I'm so pleased with the Son. And the Spirit descends upon the Son to lead him through the journey of salvation. Okay, I, all I'm trying to do here is show um, that, that, that baptism by immersion, if you want to claim that's what's going on in Scripture, I don't think it's faithful exegesis. I think it's eisegesis, which is taking our presuppositions and projecting it upon New Testament texts. I think if you get down into the context and into the meaning of the Greek, I don't think immersion was likely happening. But I'll, I'll even say this, beyond the interpretation of baptisms, we have to ask the question, where did baptism come from in the first place? John did not make this up. I don't know if you think that John just started baptizing in the Jordan out of nowhere. He, he, he didn't make this up. It was a long-standing practice of Israel. Um, there are many cleansings, there are many washings in Israel, many baptisms in Israel, and they were all, none of them were done by immersion. They were all performed the way we perform baptism in our church, by sprinkling, by pouring. I, 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 I don't know, we don't have any biblical reason to think that John totally reinvented the mode of baptism when he started baptizing in the Jordan. Now, I've left myself um, hopefully enough time. Um, because if you're very familiar with this debate, you're going to say to me, and I'm going to do it now, you're going to say to me, yes, but you have not dealt with Romans 6, Colossians 2, if you know what I'm talking about. Um, so I, what I, all I've done is examine the instances of baptism in the Gospels that are taking place and kind of look at the, the context in there. I haven't gotten into Paul's epistles. Um, Romans 6 and Colossians 2 are where the Baptists truly base their mode of baptism. Um, but I don't think that, that Paul is speaking in any... I don't think the mode of baptism is even on Paul's radar in these passages. So let me give you my interpretation of those, and then I'm going to hopefully be able to have time. If I don't, I'll just do it next week um, to tell you why we practice baptism the way we practice it. Romans 6, 3 through 4. I'm not afraid to answer this question. For those of you who think I am... Do you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. There you have it. End of debate. We were buried with Christ in baptism in order that we might be raised to walk in newness of life. That's the imagery of baptism. Colossians 2 speaks similar. I won't take time to read it. It's 2, 11 to 12 if you want to read it. Same stuff. But Romans 6 is, is, is I think, the most compelling one for Baptists. Now, so, so let me answer that. First of all, as a brief aside, if indeed these passages demand are speaking about the mode of baptism, um, then it must be said that our 
view of death, burial, and resurrection is not anywhere near what their view of death, burial, and resurrection. Immersion looks great according to the way we do death, burial, and resurrection. You put them in the ground, they're buried, and they get up. But that's not how Christ was buried or raised. Um, it's not faithful. In other words, this, our practice of immersion is not faithful to the imagery of the Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. And, and, and our, again, don't project our, our stuff onto the text. Our, the way we do burial would not have been on the mind of first century Jewish context. Um, they never would have interpreted it that way. So that's, that's one qualification. Even if this was talking about immersion, this is not the way they practiced um, death, burial, and resurrection. I still contend these passages in no way are written to prescribe a form of baptism, certainly not immersion, and to claim that they do, I really think is misguided proof texting. What we have to bear in mind is the scripture speaks of two baptisms, and I'm going to get a little nuanced here, and I hope you're okay with that. Um, it, the scriptures speak of two baptisms. Um, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the baptism that the Holy Spirit performs, which is the internal spiritual work that unites us to Christ, and the baptism that the church performs, which is an outward physical sign of that internal union. So reducing down, I guess you could say, to really two, uh, I think, I think, I, yeah. There are two, two baptisms in the New Testament. As an internal, that doesn't work. As an internal reality, and this is the baptism that Paul speaks of so much, and an external sign of that reality. It gets complicated because both of those are spoken of in the New Testament. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is the work of the church. The Holy Spirit does something, and the church does something as a sign and seal of what the Holy Spirit has done. Typically, when Paul uses the word, he is talking about the first instance of baptism, and I think he's definitely talking about that in Romans 6. Um, what does this first baptism do? It fundamentally unites us to Christ. Or to use Paul's common language, it puts us in Christ. That's what baptism is symbolizing. It puts us in Christ. And I think that's union is what's at the forefront of Romans 6 and Colossians 2. Um, verse 3 of Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? If we were to, if we were to assume the really simplistic opinion that baptism always means to dip. Um, this verse would say, all of you who have been dipped into Christ. I think there's more going on here. Um, it's, it, it, again, this is the, the development of the word. Um, goes back to that volume work. It speaks of to merge, to affect, to unite. And that's the case here. That baptism into Christ speaks of our union with Christ. And, and that's significant. Because here's how it works. Um, I think I wrote this down somewhere. This will help you. Okay. So here's how Paul talks. You've got um, union with Christ as the central reality. And because of that union with Christ, there are secondary benefits of that union with Christ. This is what saves us. This is the heart of our salvation, union with Christ. But because we're united with Christ, we're united to His righteousness, we're united to His death, we're united to His burial, to His ascension, um, we're united to His inheritance. 
So the way the Christian gospel works is, is the Holy Spirit unites us by faith, unites us with Christ, and then all of these things are, um, are what we receive because of our union with Christ. So what Paul is saying in Colossians 2 and in Romans 6, he's speaking here a lot of the burial aspect where he says, since you're united to Christ, you are united in his death and in his burial. And what that means is he, he's, he's using these secondary things to build an argument. He's telling us to walk in newness of life. And he's saying, don't you understand you've been baptized into Christ, which means you've also been baptized in, into his burial and into his death and into his newness of life. Because you're baptized into Christ, since you're united to Christ, you're united to all these different things. That's what's going on in Romans 6 and Romans 2. It would be silly for us to say, take an arbitrary benefit of Christ and say, let's let that determine the mode of baptism. Why that? Why burial? Why is that the one, one benefit of our union with Christ that is symbolized in baptism? Why, not it, why does baptism not... In other words, it says you've been baptized in Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism. Why are we choosing that as the mode rather than this as the mode, this central reality of our union with Christ? There are other instances where he says, you have, since you've been baptized in Christ, you have put on a new self. So why wouldn't we choose that one, which would look a lot more like ours, where he put on something? In other words, I think it's really misguided um, interpretation of Scripture to take two instances where Paul talks about the effect of being united to Christ, of being baptized in Christ, and let those determine the mode of baptism. I think the mode of baptism should reflect the central reality, union with Christ. And I think that's the way the New Testament speaks of it. Um, Baptism is intended, here's, here's what I said, baptism is intended to display and signify the central reality of union with Christ, not necessarily to display and signify secondary benefits of our union with Christ. Because here's the deal, even though there are two, two baptisms in the New Testament, the internal baptism and the external baptism of the church, the external baptism of the church should, re- should reflect the internal reality of the Holy Spirit. I think that the, that the mode should look like what the Holy Spirit does. And by the way, that is all over. You've got Romans 6 and Romans 2 talking about we're baptized into his burial. All throughout Scripture, all throughout the New Testament, it talks about us being baptized into the central reality, and it uses this language, baptized by, which is so marred in, in charismatic controversy, but that's, it's baptized by the Holy Spirit. In fact, Mark, um, what verse is it? I guess it's right after I'm going to turn back to it. Mark says, um, Jesus says, where is... Okay, yeah, verse 8. Verse 8. John says, I've baptized you with water, but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, why would we say Romans 6 is how we determine the mode of baptism where he's talking about a secondary benefit of our union with Christ, baptized um, into the death and burial um, of Christ. Why would we choose that as our mode than the, than the explicit thing of, I baptize with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit? Why wouldn't we let the baptism of the Holy Spirit determine the mode of baptism? Especially since that is repeated over and over again. Matthew 3.11, Luke 3.16... John 1.33, Acts 1.4-5, Acts 11.16, 1 Corinthians 12.13. 
all of them are speaking about the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit. It's all throughout the New Testament. If we are trying to glean from the New Testament the appropriate form of baptism, why would we select two verses from Paul's writing that I don't even think are talking about the mode of baptism when there are so many verses that plainly connect water baptism to the internal baptism of the Holy Spirit? Exegetically to me, it is so clear that baptism should reflect the baptizing work of the Holy Spirit that unites us to Jesus. Okay, well with that said... I would like to pose this simple question. What mode of baptism best symbolizes the work of the Holy Spirit? In other words, what does the baptism of the Holy Spirit look like? The answer to that question could not be more obvious. Proverbs 1.23, Isaiah 32.15, Isaiah 44.3, Ezekiel 39.29, Joel 2.28-29, John 1.33, Mark 1.10, Acts 2.16, Titus 3.5-6, all give the same picture. The Holy Spirit is poured out upon His people, descends upon people, will sprinkle our hearts clean. There is not one passage in all of Scripture where the work of the Holy Spirit is represented by anything resembling immersion. And that's why we don't practice baptism by immersion, but instead prefer the image of pouring. So let me, let me do my best to uh, summarize these, all of that. This is what I would say to the Romans 6, Colossians 2 thing that I get a lot. It's a good question. Romans 6 and Colossians 2 speak of being baptized into Christ, which is just another way of describing our fundamental union to Christ. This internal and spiritual baptism is performed by the Holy Spirit and is explicitly referred to in Scripture as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The internal and spiritual baptism of the Holy Spirit should be reflected in the external and physical sign of water baptism. Repeatedly, in Scripture, the Holy Spirit is described as being poured out, but is never described with the imagery of immersion. The pouring out of water upon the baptized, I think, is the best expression of the baptism of the Holy Spirit that unites us to Christ. I think it's so plain. When I, when I started to get through my cultural presuppositions and just kind of look at the New Testament and how it speaks of baptism, it was so obvious to me. It was so obvious. In fact, in the, in, in the controversial passage that everybody looks to, you know, the Mark 1 where it says Jesus came up out of the water, let's just suppose, and I think I gave you a good explanation of what I think is going there, but let's just suppose that he was baptized by immersion in the Jordan. Let's just grant that. John says, I've baptized you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit should be the symbol, should be the symbol of Christ's baptism that he later institutes. John is not performing the New Covenant baptism. He's performing baptisms according to the Jewish tradition, which I told you was not done by immersion, but by pouring and sprinkling. But okay, let's just suppose, but I hate supposing it because I really don't think it's true. But let's just suppose that it's by immersion in the Jordan. Which, by the way, it's, it's hard to find a place in the Jordan where you can do that if you've been there. I don't know if you think it's this huge gushing river. It's not. And so, all right. Let's suppose <laughs> that it was by immersion and it wasn't Jesus kneeling in the water having water poured over his head like it was. But let's suppose that it was by immersion. He says right here explicitly, I'm baptizing by water. He's going to baptize you by the Holy Spirit. And then he steps up out of the Jordan and what happened? the Spirit immediately descends upon the Son. So let's just say it was by that. Well, right there, it's changed. Because His baptism reflects the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it says that the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus. Now, 
you would think, after that long excursion about the mode of baptism, um, that I'm trying to disprove baptism by immersion as a valid form. And that's not my intention at all. Um, I think other modes are more faithful to the meaning and imagery of baptism, which is why we perform it the way we perform it in the Presbyterian Church. I think that's very, that's very faithful to the mode of baptism that I think was taking place in the New Testament and to the meaning and significance of baptism. But I will never ask you to be rebaptized because your baptism was by immersion, and therefore it's not a true baptism. I think it's a valid form of baptism. So in other words, you, you would think I'm doing all this to try to disprove it. All I'm saying in all this is I'm just trying to disprove the Baptist claim that the only valid form of baptism is immersion. That's, that's a big claim. That's a huge claim. That means that 99% of baptisms that have been performed throughout the history of the church are invalid because they're not by Immersion. In fact, my baptism was by immersion. I grew up in the Baptist church. My baptism was by immersion. I have not sought baptism in any other form because I believe that's invalid. What, is, what, what makes baptism, according to our confessions, and I think according to Scripture, is, is, is the washing of water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But I would say this, and, and I, I, this, is, this is something that really got to me when I was studying it. The same cannot be said of the other side of the debate. To their credit, true immersionists, true Baptists, take their conviction to his natural conclusion and believe that immersion is the only valid form of baptism. If you join a Baptist church and have not been baptized upon a true confession of faith by the mode of immersion, they would not recognize your baptism as valid. And all I'm trying to do is, is say with all respect and humility and love towards my Baptist brothers, I just don't think that you can make anything like that of a case in the New Testament. Um, they would not recognize my baptism. They would not recognize um, the baptisms of the Puritans, of the Reformers. I appreciate their consistency to the doctrine to say that this is the only valid form, but all, all I'm saying is I hope I have shown at very least that claiming immersion alone as the only form is mistaken at best. Okay, let me tell you where I'm going to go. I'm glad I was able to get through that. Um, so, like I said at the beginning, there are two questions to baptism. Don't you love that chart? That's just so clear. Um, there are two questions to answer when we're talking about baptism. To whom is baptism administered and how is baptism administered? I flipped those discussions because I feel like people can't... Um, or at least I don't want to project my experience on you. In my experience, it was really hard for me to really get into um, the discussion of infant baptism because I was so enamored with immersion. And so if it meant I was going to have to give up that, I just, I, in my heart, I knew there, there can't be another way to baptize than immersion. And so all I've tried to do today is talk about the mode first to give you at least an understanding of why we practice it the way we do. And to hopefully show you that you at least can't, at the very least, you can't make the claim that the only exclusive way of baptism is by immersion. Now I have the big job before me, and that's why I've left two weeks for that. We've got two more weeks um, to, con to, to convince you, or at least help you see that we're not crazy, um, that, that it is appropriate, it is right to take this sign, this sacrament, and apply it to our children to take the sign of union with Christ, to take the sign of baptism of the Holy Spirit and apply it to those. And I know you think, well, why would you apply it to those who have not yet received Christ, who have not yet made their profession, who have not yet had undergone the baptism 
of the Holy Spirit. And, and I think that there are really good reasons to go. So that's where we're going to go the next two weeks. And uh, hopefully I'll give a good, good apologetic for why we practice it on infants. Let me pray for us. And, uh, and we'll get out of here. Lord, um, thank you. I feel like that was so much. And I, I pack, try to pack so much into um, that half hour. And I pray that um, you would, you would uh, use that however you see fit, Spirit. We trust you with that. Um, Lord, just, just in lecturing, I'm, I'm overwhelmed again by the truth of our baptism of the Holy Spirit, which unites us to Jesus, being born again. It's, that was not my work, God. That was not any of our works. You did that. You, you made us alive in Christ Jesus. You united us to our Savior so that we receive all of His benefits. And so we simply um, rejoice and stand amazed at the reality that is signified in our baptism. The reality that it is your work, Lord. Baptism is not our declaration to you. It's your declaration to us of what you have done and what you will do. So we stand amazed at the work of your Holy Spirit and we praise you for our Savior. Um, We hide in you, Christ and all that is ours. I pray that you would help us transition our hearts now into worship, um, to praise the God who makes us alive in Christ Jesus. Give us discernment in this discussion. I, I continue to pray against the evil one who would, who would take doctrinal um, discussions and turn them into disputes and infighting and all that. I, I, again, I continue to pray against that, that that would not happen, that we would all enter into this discussion with humility and charity. Um, Bless our church. We commit our lives to you afresh. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, y'all. Thank you very much for your attention. We'll see you next week.